Well, welcome back, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to A Minor Detail Radio on blogtalkradio.com slash A Minor Detail. You can also find me on the web at aminordetail.com. My, my apologies. I'm snickery because my, my soon-to-be wife is looking at me on the rear of her eye, yelling at me uh, because we keep adding people to the wedding. And she says, no more. And I said, well, what about this person? What about that person? So she is said we are at full capacity. Um, so I'm I'm getting the evil eye, the stink eye, if you will, right now. Um, but I have a great candidate um, who will be joining me this evening. Her name is Dr. Dana Beyer, and she is running for state senate and the well talked about the well to do District 18 that just keeps popping up in the news recently, and we'll get to quite a bit of that later in this interview. But um, Dana, welcome. Thanks for joining me for the first time. My pleasure, Ryan. It, yeah, is absolutely. part of the deal with the wedding invitation that if you're invited on the podcast, you get priority as for being invited? Is that why she's upset with you? Or yeah, she, do I have that she, wrong? Well, she keeps telling me, I, I, I will be going through our list and we're narrowing it down. And we've we've sent out our invitations and she says, Ryan, you've, you've got to stop inviting people. I said, well, we have to, you know, we have to consider this person. And so I, I get the evil eye, Dana, and it's, it's not good. But uh, what's that, Kim? Yeah, I'll be sitting out on a picnic bench, she said. So, no, that's right. Well, it's the first test of a marriage, actually. So it's, <laughs> it's good luck. First, <laughs> that means a lot. No, I appreciate that, right. Dana. Um, so, you, um, man, your, your entire career is absolutely phenomenal. It's interesting. And so I always start out the interview asking the candidate, what, what is it that they, they want to accomplish having this conversation? What, what do you want our listeners to, to learn about you and your candidacy and your platform and maybe your life by listening to us for the next uh, 60 to 70 minutes? Well, I think the most important value that you bring is something that as you've noticed, because you've been at two of our forums so far, that you can't glean from a multi-candidate forum. But you just sit and you listen to the person. When I go into the voting booth, particularly in primaries, which are party primaries, I'm looking for someone to represent me. That's what we are running for, to be a representative. We delegate the responsibility for our lives to these candidates who then become our elected officials. And I want somebody with good character whom I can trust. So I hope that this hour will give the voters who may be listening a sense of who I am as a person so that they can make a better judgment come June 26th. You can read candidates' policies on websites. You can read analyses of them. As you know from the last forum, in the District 18 race, there are very few differences amongst the candidates. So in particular, under those circumstances, I think it's important to get a sense of who we are as people. And you provide an incredibly important service by giving long-form journalism, so to speak, a time to help people understand who we are. If this were a presidential campaign, there'd be plenty of that, right? There are plenty of opportunities. You can piece that together. But, you know, we don't do TV ads. And we rarely have the opportunity to sit down and speak in any great depth 
in any of the forums or debates that are set up. And I, I call them debates only because they're often titled that, but we rarely even have debates in the classic debating forensic sense. So I appreciate the opportunity simply to sit and chat with you. Now, this is great. And I, I have most fun and I learn so much about the candidates and their lives and their interest in politics. And we often dip, as we will tonight, into more of the personal side, the humanistic side of the candidate. And I wanted to mention that last week, Dana, you <laughs> there was a point where you almost took control of the debate for the moderator and said, well, you know, here's the question. Here's how you ask the question. We can talk about <laughs> last week's debate. But I, I thought that the second go around, which it was held at um, was I think it was the senior center last week right. in Silver Spring. There was more of a policy discussion. You, the candidates, diverged on some issues, and you they extrapolated some differences, not a lot, but that's okay because it's a look. The district is a progressive bastion. That is that's just what District 18 will be. You lead the four. You lead that. Uh, the state of Maryland and progressive values. But I will say that um, last week I was not so much impressed by the way that the moderator uh, handled the, the opening of the debate and where he basically said, Hey, here's these you know, 13, 12 candidates on stage. Let's just, where do you all disagree? And if I were the moderator, I would have dug into their policy stances. I would have done the, the requisite research and pulled all of that out to, and then ask the probing questions that you ask. And at one point, Dana, you said, well, you know, you need to ask it this way. Interesting, interesting format. Yes, it was. And I have no problem. I've moderated my share of debates and I have no problem being provocative. I think that's a good way to run a debate because after a while it gets tedious. You give the same opening statements. You answer, the audience asks the same questions. Then you give the same closing statements. I don't know why we often bother because usually the people who show up are the same people. If we did a better job at outreach and there were different crowds at each of these debates, it would have greater value. So whenever I'm in control of these debates, I don't do opening statements, which I liked about last week's format. However, what I was raising my hand to, to Mr. Duffy about was he didn't at the beginning introduce us since we weren't introducing ourselves, he had an obligation to introduce us to the audience, and he didn't point out that he had all the candidates up there, Senate and House candidates. And that went on, even though I was basically told to keep to my place. He didn't come out publicly and announce that to the crowd for about an hour. So most yeah. people didn't know, and I brought that up because at the first debate, people came up to me at the end and said, who are you running against? What are you running for? And I just believe that that is a fundamental fact that everybody leaving a forum like that should know without having to be reminded. So even though the Senate candidates were on stage, stage left and the House candidates were stage right, it didn't help that he didn't mention that to people. And that's the only thing I was just trying to sort of set a ground rule when he jumped in there. And I got chastised for that, but okay. You know, and, and, and at the end, I did mention what you just referred to. I made the point to the moderator that I disagree with his premise, that there yeah. must be disagreement, which he was, he was riffing on a blog post 
from seventh state a week before. I listened. I was present at the debate. I don't know how these people differ. Fair enough. But that's just on policy. And I made the point that, as you did, in District 18, Democrats generally agree on the major policy issues and that that's a virtue. That's not a vice. That's who we are, and we're representing our people. That's what the Democratic voters want. If there were value in not having a core of progressive positions in District 18, there would be other candidates out there to fill that void because you'd win if the Democratic Party wanted, I don't know, somebody who was more, more, more of a blue dog Democrat, more conservative. There would be a draw for that. It would be a great opportunity for somebody like that. But nobody runs on that kind of a platform for good reason, because there are no votes there. Hmm. Um, one thing that the, the, the last week's debate or forum, if you will, did not draw out of the candidates was this, the background of where they started, where they grew up, how they got their entrance into politics, anything about them personally. We, we, we went straight into policy, and that's fine because I think people are there – to, to talk about the issues. But as part of my show, and what I often like to do is just to have a conversation with the candidates and introduce them as Dana Byer, the person, rather than Dana Byer, the candidate, and here are 10 things that I agree. So that's where I want to use the first half of the show just to talk about you, and then we can go into policy in the latter half. So Dana, you, you grew up, and I'm just looking at your Wikipedia bio, um, you're, you grew up in New York City. In fact, I think right. you grew up in what, Brooklyn? No, I was born in Manhattan, spent the first five years of my life in the Bronx, and then my parents moved out to the country side of eastern Queens. So I was near the Nassau County line in Queens in a town called Bayside, for the formative years of my life. And in those days, my friends and I thought our lives were so boring, we called it Boring Bayside, and we would joke about that. <laughs> uh, and that was the 60s, mind you. That was anything but boring. But, you know, when you're young and you're just you're going to school and you're going to the playground, it's, this is the impression you get, particularly in suburbia, the growing suburbia of the 60s, because the first real suburb sort of a la Reston, and Columbia that we have now, these planned communities, was at Levittown out on the island, which started being built, I believe, in 1955. And my parents had friends who moved out there. So we were the first wave of that flight from the inner city to the suburbs. Some of that was simply a function of income and the desire for a single-family home, more green space, ball fields, and such like that. Some of it, as I learned later on, was white flight and a movement away from an increasingly diversifying city. But as children, we had no clue as to anything about that at the time. Levittown. That sounds familiar. I think, isn't that, I, I read some of uh, Bill O'Reilly's books in the past. Is that where he was from? I'm pretty uh, sure. Was he? It, it, it could be. I mean, Levittown was the first sort of cookie-cutter community built by a guy named Levitt. Now, interestingly, to bring it, to tie it in with today, Levitt was a major developer in New York in those days. Another major developer was a guy, uh, five letters in his name, but it starts with a T. Oh, what was that again? Oh, Trump, I think it was, <laughs> who was building, 
you know, the, these kinds of developments, high-rises, apartment buildings and such that my friends grew up in. And, yeah. you know, if you're going to have 8 million people in a city as small as New York, I mean, it's not a, a large, sprawling city, you're, you're going to have people in, in huge apartment complexes. And so, yeah, there were – that was that new world. There was a lot of public housing at the time and a lot of middle-class, lower to middle to even upper-class apartment buildings, but plenty of housing for working people, the kind yeah. of housing we don't see in Montgomery County anymore – and in New York, as you know, there's still rent control in some places, not as much as there used to be. So there was an effort in the post-war era to make the city habitable for the people who live there so that even if you were doing a job on, uh, I don't know, maybe you were, you were dealing, you were in the meat district, meatpacking district in Manhattan, or you were hauling freight, or you were a longshoreman or something, you could afford to live in the city limits. Maybe not in Manhattan, or unless you were really uptown in Manhattan, but, you know, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, you can afford to live in the city. We don't, we're losing that here in Montgomery County and in D.C. as well, because the gentrification is pricing housing beyond the, the realm of what many people can manage. When I was growing up, it used to be the rule of thumb was 25% of your income went to housing costs. Now, in some areas, it's as high as 50 percent. And I don't think that's tenable anymore. But that, okay, that's not about my personal story. But the important (laughs) point about my childhood was I grew up in an expanding, growing middle class. And my parents were swept along with that. My father was an accountant who went back to school during the 60s to study computer programming and systems analysis, which served me as a very positive role model in that one's education doesn't end when school ends. And going to night school for five years was a burden on the family. My mother was a superwoman of the time. She raised two kids. She also was a master teacher in math and did her part to support the family. Unfortunately for her, she also had Harvey Weinstein in her geometry class and that's mm. something that she's not alive today to, to have to deal with that sense of scandal. But that's the crowd that I grew up with. And it's, it's interesting how sometimes things come full circle. But my parents were dedicated, committed middle class folks who cared primarily about their children's education. So we got to go to whatever schools for which we were qualified. And I was fortunate to attend Cornell Arts and Sciences in the University of Pennsylvania, and my brother attended Harvard undergrad and Yale Law School. So that was what gave purpose to my parents' lives, and we learned from that the significance as a parent to ensure that your children have the best education possible. Mm, And the economy of the time made that possible. Remember, that was an era where – Everybody that was working in a, in a strong enough uh, company had a defined benefit pension plan to look forward to. My mother had retiree health benefits. There was strong union support for sick leave and the rest. The things that we have to fight for today were the norm back in the 50s and the 60s because the people of this country made the decision then that they were going to 
create that kind of society. The middle class doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't grow by sowing seeds. It grows by government and the people who vote for that, those governments to make a commitment to create that middle class. And back in the 50s, the marginal federal income tax rate was 91%. Not yeah. that anybody paid it, but still, <laughs> even wealthy folks in those days didn't rant and rave about the burden of uh, onerous taxation. So you can't get that kind of thriving middle class unless you're willing to pay for it. Well, part of your career and your story is that you um, you became a you, – you earned your medical degree from – University of Pennsylvania, and then you went on to become a an eye doctor, an eye surgeon, right. and you were very successful at that. And I, I talk to us about that, about your career um, in the as a as a physician. It was something I always wanted to do. Though looking back at it now, it's hard to tease out whether it was what my parents primarily wanted for me, rather than what I wanted. But I was always enamored of science. I had a microscope, I had a chemistry set, I built rockets, I built electronics, I remember building my first radio. So I was always into that kind of tinkering, and medicine was one of the natural tracks for a middle-class Jewish kid in New York in, at mid-century. So I went in that direction, I, I was given books like uh, Aerosmith to read about you know, what it was like being a physician in, in America in the first half of the 20th century to get me inspired, uh, books like Microbe Hunters by Paul de Cruyff that, that excited me about what it's like to solve medical mysteries and help people. And it was part of the warp and woof of my upbringing. I remember President Kennedy's inaugural address, even though I was only eight, I was inspired by Dr. King, and the first campaign I ever worked on was Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. Public service was part of the milieu of middle-class Jewish New York in which I was raised. So going to medical school and serving a community was perfectly natural for me. There was no struggle in that at all. For me, the only choice was really, was I going to do more clinical medicine or more research-based medicine? And hmm. even though initially I was leaning towards the clinical because I love lab work, I love synthetic organic chemistry and the like, I eventually started developing a great deal of satisfaction of working with patients and helping them and decided then to go into clinical practice. Now, I, got, I was very lucky that when I was doing my internship, there was an opening in the best eye program in the country at the University of Miami's Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, and I applied for it. And fortunately for me, that time I won the lottery. I got in. So I was wow. trained by the best in the country. And, again, just goes to show that timing is everything. I happened to be down in Miami at a time of civil unrest, the Liberty City riots. I don't know if you remember that at all, but the biggest adventure that we had there was the Marialito boat lift under Jimmy Carter. And thousands of former Cuban prisoners were put on boats, and the flotilla came and landed at Key West. Mm. And these people were resettled in Miami, and they needed health care. So I got to do, as a resident, 
maybe five times as much surgery as my colleagues around the country would normally get simply because they didn't have the volume of patients. And obviously as refugees, these Cubans were not in being welcomed into private practice. So we got to train with them. And as a result, by the time I finished my training, I was really good at what I was doing. Practice does make perfect if you have the material that you can work with. And I got to help a lot of people who had never really gotten the help that they, one would have thought they deserved, and which we thought that in a country like Cuba, which had universal health care, everybody would have. But we saw medical conditions there that we had only read about in textbooks. Hmm. So let's fast forward to uh, today, but I want to back up into about September of 2016. I'm, I'm referring to a Washington Post article that details your first run for office, which was, I, I believe it was back in 2006 for the first time when you ran as a state delegate candidate in District 18. Right. And right. They, they talked about um, a more personal side of your, of your narrative. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to just explore that because I think people are, are genuinely interested in that side of, of who you are because about how brave and fearless you've been and talking about who you are as a person. And so the, the very first few paragraphs mention that for um, several years of your life, uh, you were, you lived as a man and then you decided to, well, of course, you transitioned um, into a female and you are, you classify yourself as transgender. So Dana, will you talk about that tonight? And I, I don't want to, I hope that you, you feel comfortable enough to talk about that. No, no, I, I, I feel very comfortable talking about that. The core of my activism over the past 20 years has been LGBTQ activism, primarily focusing on the trans aspect of it. When I transitioned, I realized that I needed to dedicate myself to an issue where few were being involved. I mean, there are so many things in this world that need to be done. And as a leader in Progressive Neighbors, for instance, over the last decade, you know, every year we would have this list, this panoply of agenda items of what needs to be done, environment, health care, immigration, uh, income, inequality, all those things. There's so much to do. But there are only still 24 hours in, uh, in a day here on Earth, and so you have to choose. And I chose that I would focus on where my skills were most critically needed and where I had those skills to be able to apply them. And as a physician who had studied human sexual development because it was very personal to me throughout my entire life, I decided I was going to work on trans civil rights. Similarly, in the field of public health, I've worked on the issue of endocrine disruptors, which are compounds that impact human sexual development. They're used as pesticides, herbicides, and the rest on our crops, but they get into the water supply and then they impact people and, and in utero and they cause, they can cause intersex conditions. And I am, and I rarely talk about this because it's a complex issue, but I'm not only trans, I'm also intersex. So I was born as a result of the impact of a drug that my mother took called DES, diethylstilbestrol. And in the post-war era, after 
the man had been away for a very long time during the war for four years, everybody was in a big hurry to have, to have children, to start their families. <laughs> and when women miscarried, which they do at a rate of 30 to 40 percent, it's very common, people got really all, got upset, the, the pressure was on, and drug development happened that was focused on preventing miscarriage. So this drug, DES, which had been created back in the 30s, was thought as a super estrogen was thought to prevent miscarriage. They hadn't done any testing on it. This was all simply an intellectual exercise. And it turns out it didn't work, but it was given to many, many women from Boston all the way down to, to D.C., primarily, but also across the country. And what it does is it causes in a significant number of people conditions such as infertility, breast cancer, various psychiatric conditions, but it also causes homosexuality and transsexualism. And I was part of a team that proved that it causes transsexualism. So I was exposed to this drug in utero. And when I hit puberty, I discovered that I wasn't the boy that people thought I was. Mm -hmm. I always knew from age seven that I was a girl. That's my first memory. I knew something was wrong. I was being attributed to the male part of the species. I was being raised as a boy, and yet I knew something was wrong. And when I hit puberty, I physically manifested some female characteristics. I had a serious medical crisis. I died, had to be resuscitated. It's a very complex story. I was tortured for quite a bit of time. But when I came out of it and was old enough to begin to understand some of these things, I studied them. And I always knew that I was female, but I was still living as a guy. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was a very difficult thing to do to come out publicly and to transition socially. I have friends who did it. I consider them to be incredibly courageous people. I didn't have the courage to do it because I wanted to have my medical career and raise a family. That wow. was my choice at the time. And I made it. I don't regret it. But that's that was one direction that many of my generation went. Others took the plunge, came out, but often could not fit into society. And there were a lot of suicides and murders and just economic stress on a lot of people. So when I finally began to really transition in the 90s and completed it in 2003, I decided that I needed to pay back the people who had paved this way for me, but also to pay it forward as a physician, as a biologist, to be able to speak on this issue with authority and use that in order to bring equal rights to the trans community. And that's what I've done over the past 15 years here in Maryland, starting in Montgomery County in 2007, going through Baltimore County, Howard County, finally in the state, but also working on Capitol Hill and globally in an effort to make trans people an included part of the human community. So it, it's quite it, a journey. It's not, and it's, it's quite a journey, and I want, I want to say something to you because I appreciate it. And we hadn't talked about this before, so I'm very pleased. Many people, particularly those on the right, but even some colleagues on the left, say, well, you know, you were a man and then you became a woman. No, that's not the case. I was always female. Sex is a complex biological phenomenon. There are many 
sex characteristics from chromosomes to the genes, to gene expression, to secondary sex characteristics, to genitals, the gonads. And finally, the most important one is your brain. And gender identity, and you've obviously heard that phrase, gender identity is rooted in our brains. It's part of brain sex. So trans people know who they are just the way non-trans people know from a very, very early age. That's when we act out our sexual roles or what we call gender roles as far as the manifestation of that sex. So we do that because we know who we are. So we were, I was assigned male at birth because my genitals appeared to be normal. That was only discovered at puberty that things weren't quite so normal. And ultimately, 40 years later, I took that into my own hands and I finally fixed the confusion in my body going all the way back to my conception. And as was discovered by most scientists in the 90s, you can't, fix people's brains on this. You can only fix their bodies and allow them to live as who they truly are. And we still fight those battles today. There are still some really ugly right-wing extremists, websites and blogs and such that attack trans people as being delusional. But it is overwhelmingly accepted in the medical community here and globally that trans women are women and trans men are men and that this is rooted in our biology. So I've been fighting as a physician and as a scientist to get that point across in my legislative and legal advocacy. And it's been very satisfying for me to be able to do that. It helps me clearly, but it also helps those who don't have the background that I do, the success I had in my practice, the financial security that I have. I can go out and do that and help others. And that in its own way is as satisfying as operating on somebody and helping them get their vision back. So that's been what's actually motivated me to do this. And I went into politics because I had been doing lobbying in Annapolis with Equality Maryland. And I was the only trans person on the board for many, many years. And I was the one who was the, the lobbyist for the gender identity bill beginning in 2007. We passed it in Montgomery County in 2007. We defended it against the first bathroom bill referendum attack from the right in 2008. We won that case in the Court of Appeals down in Annapolis. And we've been moving forward to the point now where we have federal appeals courts recognizing that, yeah, of course, trans women are women and trans men are men, and we don't discriminate on the basis of sex. So we're covered under both Title VII and Title IX, as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Well, I want to, I want to, Dana, I want to applaud you because you have had an unbelievable, as I said earlier, a journey. And I, I think nobody would ever doubt uh, the courage that you have had to, to display, and I'm sure in moments that were not easy. And none of this is easy to me. I mean, I look at you and say, this is somebody who is an inspiration to, to people, to a community and to, to be who you are, to live who you are. And, and I think that, listen, I grew up in a place in Western Maryland where I was first introduced to politicians like Neil Parrott, who you might be familiar with. Um, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. De Delegate Parrott is a strong right-wing Christian conservative 
And right. there's a if you draw a, a box around him, that's where he stays within. So, you know, it's it's yeah, he fought hard against the bathroom bill using some outrageous argumentation that you know, young men and you know, boys and girls are going to be attacked by transgendered individuals inside of restrooms and some really nasty stuff. And, you know, Neil Parrott and I have been at political odds for years, even though I would consider myself in the center of the political, uh, you know, of the aisle. I mean, I, I definitely lean very progressive on some issues and then fiscally conservative. And I think you could clearly classify me as a, as a libertarian in many respects, but I've had many I – I don't even want to say debates because Mr. Parrott refuses to debate me on any of these issues because he scurries away um, and sticks to his talking points. But nonetheless, they have pushed back hard, even in a progressive state like Maryland. But you and your life and your story and your, your activism has dramatically shifted the conversation from, well, we're not – you know, this, this might feel abnormal to us to – these are our friends. These are our neighbors, and they are just like everybody else. And you know, as somebody who is a strong supporter of uh, the LGBTQ community, I really have a hard time, especially when I visit back in Western Maryland, where it still seemed, you know, where gays and lesbians and transgendered individuals they're looked at differently. And I have a hard time with that. But I think we're you're moving the dial closer to where it really should be, and where People um, can feel comfortable, and you know it's a it's a transition for everybody inside of you know going from 2006, where we thought in the state of Maryland gay marriage will never pass, and look what happened. I supported it. That's right. And I was yeah. I proudly supported it, and I was still a Republican then. And my Republican friend said, "Oh, Ryan, that's heresy. How could you abandon the Republican platform?" And I say. Do you realize how many gays are in the Republican Party? <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, right. we have lots of gay friends who are in the Republican Party, and some of them are still, unfortunately, in the closet, and they're afraid to come out. But that's to each their own, and there's, you know, that's a that's well. A personal there, there, there's a there's a story there too, because you mentioned you're a libertarian, and many true libertarians are socially libertarian, so they're pro LGBTQ, and they are. Absolutely. Financially, uh, you know, fiscally, economically libertarian, too. And I think that's where most of the differences come between progressive Democrats and libertarians. But I can tell you this. I probably, first off, I couldn't have accomplished what I did without the people who supported me on this. I led some of these battles. Others I participated in. And we had a growing number of people like you who participated and made it happen. We wouldn't have passed the law in 2007 in Montgomery County if my boss at the time, Councilmember Trachtenberg, wasn't committed to getting it done. We got a unanimous vote on the council, but it didn't happen automatically. It took some effort. You know, Ike signed it. There wasn't any problem for him because he had been a member of the Human Rights Commission in Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. He got that, but not everybody got it. It took some education. And in different parts of the state, it took greater efforts. I probably spent most of my activism time on LGBT issues Working for the gay community, the gay, the LGB part of the LGBTQ community on marriage issues or what were pre-marriage issues back in 2006 when I first ran. And I was one of those who went to an institute that you probably know well, the Cato Institute, to yep. get support 
for issues like marriage equality. A uh, very strong supporter of it in Maryland was a fellow named Walter Olson, who was a good, good friend, friend of another ours. friend of mine, right? And so Walter made that case. I worked with conservative gay men like Andrew Sullivan, who made the mm-hmm. conservative case for marriage. Not Andrew's not a libertarian, but he's more of a traditional, oh, I don't know, Tory-like, because uh, he's from Britain, he's more of a Tory. But again, he made the conservative case for marriage. Bringing all those people together was very important in getting it passed in Maryland. I did have one advantage, though, we haven't discussed. And I mentioned that I was raised in, a, in an egalitarian, uh, sort of universalist, Jewish ethos, where we, talk, we call it tikkun olam, repairing the world, the social justice part of the Jewish tradition. But I went to Orthodox Jewish day schools. And so I have a very well-grounded Jewish education. And I could deal with people like Neil Parrott. And I don't know if you remember, I think his name, there was a senator from Western Maryland named Mooney. Yeah, Alex Mooney, who's now a U.S. Alex, congressman. He's in, he, he skipped right. Maryland and then went to West Virginia, moved to Berkeley Springs, went, and got elected in the, sex, the, sixth, or the, uh, the second congressional district. Right. So Alex Mooney was a senator at the time, back when I, we were first pushing this through around 06 and 07. And he had a uh, one of his staffers was a a guy named was a pastor named Rick Parsons, and he was the head of I think Protect Maryland Marriage. That might have been the name back in those days. And he and I used to clash, but we'd clash on a in a remarkably bipartisan way. It wasn't hostile. Somebody like Delegate Parrott wouldn't listen. We just shut down. And you talk to him, and he throw his talking points back at you. There was no conversation. But with Parsons, I had a conversation. And when I first testified in 2007 on behalf of the gender identity bill, he came up to me afterwards, and he grabbed my arm and said, I got to talk to you. And he said, that was absolutely stunning. I had no idea who you really were and what your particular issue was about. And rather than sort of fighting him off and saying, well, look, you oppose marriage equality and such, I don't want your support for trans people. We were able to talk to one another because we shared a grounding in our religious traditions. And we developed some respect. It's not that Mooney ever voted for the bill. He was on JPR at the time, and we needed a sixth vote, which we didn't get till 2014, even though there were eight Democrats on the committee. Bill, on a personal level, we had a very positive relationship. And there was a time... I think it was in 2008 that I was the cover girl on like the traditional values coalition website. And it was a really typically nasty, a photo calling me a guy and all the rest. And I saw it. My mother actually sent it to me and I was walking through the hills, through the halls of Annapolis. And I bumped into Parsons and I said, look, this is, this is what you guys are saying about me. And I showed him this on my phone And he went, that's absolutely intolerable. I'm going to call the president of that organization right now and tell him to take it down. And I stood there while he called that fellow whose name I can't remember at this point. And a day later, it was down. So there was a level of respect that we had for one another. He didn't change his ideology. He didn't change his position, although a number of those folks did as time went on. And that's how you move America, and that's what we need to do. Other people like Parrott really 
don't want to listen. But I'm certainly happy to talk to anybody who comes at this with an open mind. And I often find that Republicans, particularly those on the Hill, who have never really dealt with this issue, say the trans issue, if they're willing to talk to me or some of my colleagues and hear us sort of de novo, because just tuning out the, the, the political talking points, we actually can develop relationships. When the employment non-discrimination bill was last in front of Congress in 2013, we got 64 votes in the Senate. We got people like Orrin Hatch because they were willing to listen. And I remember this was the first time there was ever a gender identity uh, hearing on the Hill. It was a House hearing after ENDA had failed in 2007. Barney Frank, who was the leading gay congressman at the time, got us this hearing. And there were a whole bunch of trans people sitting in the room, and he's testifying there with then-Congresswoman Baldwin. Hmm. And he says he looks around at his colleagues on the, uh, you know, on the dais, and he goes, you know, guys, back in 1988, when I first came out, you all looked at me and you thought I was weird. Just the way you look at all those people behind me now and you think they're weird. Well, guess what? 20 years later, you sort of gotten used to me. Some of you even like me. The same <laughs> thing's going to happen with those people because they're weird to you because you just don't know people like that. And the interesting thing is, five years ago, the poll, a survey of Americans and their beliefs about trans people showed that only 8% of Americans knew a trans person. Today, it's 35%. And that changes things. When you have a neighbor who has a child who's transitioning, suddenly you pay attention. Or a cousin, or a niece, or a nephew, whatever, or a parent. These things happen, and the culture changes your experience changes and you sort of, you lighten up a little bit and you go, well, yeah, I guess we are a diverse country on many levels. And there were what, 11 constitutional amendments in 2004 against mm -hmm. marriage equality. And we had marriage equality 11 years later, because in those days, maybe 20% of Americans knew a gay person. And by 2015, it was up to 80%. And it's really hard to deny somebody rights whom you know personally. So that's the story of progress in America. It's not Amen. always a straight line. Clearly, it's not, particularly if you're African-American. That's a whole different story. But for most minorities, it follows that path. And for me, and I think for most trans people in my generation, those of us who finally found the courage to come out, once we did that, we became hardened. We didn't really care what other people thought. So back in 2007 on the county council, when we were defending our law and I was getting hate mail and death threats and my boss was getting them, we had to call the FBI in. It was pretty horrendous, but it didn't break us because I personally had been through worse. And it was like, well, I'm not going to let this stop me. So I didn't. And here we are now. But there are many other people like me out there who've been through the ringer and have just persevered and have come out feeling better about themselves and in the process have made America a better place. Well, you said it. And so I think America is a better place because of the activism, because of your work and because of your, like I said, your courageousness and you are, uh, yeah, I, I agree Totally. I want to move into the District 18 race. Dana, you are okay. running against um, two other 
contenders. One is a sitting state delegate who currently represents District 18, and, and his name is Jeff Wildstriker. And then you're running against another candidate, and her name is Michelle. Help me with her last. I, I know this is bad. And Carhartt. Carhartt. Yes. That's okay. No, well, she just jumped in five days before the filing deadline. So, I mean, most people don't know. It's C-A-R-H-A-R-T. So you are jumping in. You are, again, running for state senate in 2014. You took on the whole right. gauntlet of running against a popular state senator in the district, Rich Manolino. However, when you right. ran, um, surprisingly, it was 58 to 42. You self-financed, and you, you spent some you good, a good chunk of your own change. And this time around, you said that you, you're probably going to hold off on, on doing as such, um, but you needed to get out your message in a way, and you could self-finance. And so uh, one of the you – know, back in 2014, I know that some people took some sort of umbrage with you because, my gosh, you're running against uh, State Senator Rich Madalino, who is an openly gay man who is now running for governor, and that's why, of course, this, is, this has an opening here. And, you know, some people were – kind of said, well, why is Dana running against uh, Madalino? He's popular. He's a budget wizard. He's a wonky guy. Everybody likes him down here. But you ran against him. Why? What was the reason? Well, I, again, as I told you at the beginning, I'm committed to public service. And even though I've accomplished a great deal as an outside outsider, as an activist, as someone with what is called informal authority, I wanted the opportunity to work from the inside with formal authority. And having run four years earlier for delegate again a second time against the slate of delegates, I learned that it's much harder to penetrate that slate of delegates because they form up as a slate and it's very hard to run against a slate. You can't pick on an individual. It's very unbecoming and unseemly. So after that experience where I came in fourth, but I didn't knock anybody off, yeah. I decided to, to poll and to find out which path was the better one for me. Do I once again run against the slate of delegates or do I run against the senator? And my polling showed my best shot was at running for Senate. And I also wanted the opportunity at least once in my life to have a classic, traditional American one-on-one -on -one political battle. I also believe primaries are important. I'm glad more people are running. I think there may be too many people running for council at large this year. There, there's there's got to be a point where it begins to become a little bit too crazy because voters can't really absorb all that information. But the more the better, because it's in those times that you have a platform to discuss important issues. So I ran against Rich not because he was gay. He and I had worked together on marriage equality and such. And it wasn't personal. It was, this is a path, and we were different. So we were talking about earlier on, are there issues that separate us today? Well, there were issues in 2014, because economic justice was just becoming a trenchant issue. This was just before Ferguson. This was two years after the Occupy movement and three, four years after the Tea Party movement, where these issues were becoming important. And I felt that I was significantly more progressive, more to the left 
then Senator Madalino. And so I ran that campaign. And as you mentioned, I did really well. I did better, yeah. I believe, than anybody else challenging a sitting senator in the state. I, so that, that was it. That was a policy distinction. I had to self-fund because the, my base, the people you go to for money, initially were conflicted. They weren't happy because I would be asking them for money. He'd be asking them for money. And they were conflicted. And I said, okay, I'm not going to ruin friendships over this. So my choice was either to pull out and not run or fund it myself. And I wanted to run, so I funded it myself. That's not a preferred choice, but having had a successful career, I could do it. And so I did it. This time around, it's different. This time there's a vacancy. And that's a whole different situation. And we now have three people running for it. I don't know Michelle at all. I believe my children may have attended one of her Marvitats when they were younger. I'd have to go back and look at records. She seems to remember me. But uh, so I can't speak about her, but I, I do know that when it comes to actual record and on issues of character, that I believe I am most qualified to be the next senator to succeed Senator Madalino. And I think that that would be a great political story. That's the way politics works. You know, you move on. Situation changes. He's running for governor. He's doing well with that. I've seen him speak. People really like him after they listen to him speak. And so he's got a future that running against me may have prepared him for because he hadn't had a real electoral challenge since his first race back in 2002. It's very hard to run for higher office when you've never really been challenged. So if I helped him in any small way to prepare him for that, I, I'm glad that I did, and I think he's doing well, and I'm helping him now as best I can, and I wish him well. It would be great to be his successor and working for Governor Madalino. Well, you mentioned character, and, and you also mentioned that same – used the same phrase at the closing of last week's debate, and I, I just happen to think that it's not coincidental, and I want to bring this up. Because I think it's important that last week, one of the District 18 candidates, Helga Lust, uh, said that she had met with your opponent, Jeff, back in last December at a coffee shop in Kensington and said that at the end of the conversation that they were having, uh, I, I presume it was about a uh, their, their, their respective races, that Jeff had asked her to jump out of the District 18 race and jump into the Senate race ostensibly to help him as a candidate. And, of course, last week I published it on my website, her account of that, and I, I then talked to Jeff um, off the record. And, you know, I, I, I won't share the content, but he had a different story when I that was published in, in Bethesda Beat that he accused, you know, he used – Sort of as a he's an attorney, I should mention that, but he used a phrase, you know, actual malice when describing uh, Helga's motivation. So, I my, my question to you is, what do you make of this entire situation? What's your take on this? Well, first off, when I when I talk about character, I guess at last week's forum, one could draw a connection between this incident and its consequences. And my statement, but I had said that 
earlier. When I introduced myself at the first forum three weeks earlier than that, I said the most important issue is character. And I believe that. I've always believed that. Uh, sometimes we cover it up when we back remember in 2000, people said, I'd rather have a beer with George Bush than Al Gore, right? George seems like a hell fellow well met and, and Al is stiff and he's into lockboxes and, and things like that. I'd rather have the beer with Bush than with Gore. But I believe that most people, when they think it through, are really trying to sense whom they can trust, whom they can choose to represent them because you're doing their job. You are their delegate. And as a result, I've always believed that. The problem is in campaigns, it's very hard to run on character because it very easily degenerates into personal attacks because character is a very personal, it's a very intimate thing, right? It's, it's these attributes that have to do with integrity and compassion and empathy and honesty, reliability, decency, all of these things that are very personal. You can't talk about that. And if you, if you say it about yourself, sometimes you appear to be arrogant. And if you say, well, my opponent doesn't have it, then it can appear to be cruel. So we often don't talk about it explicitly. We try to hint at it in many in the ways we present ourselves. But this time around, since the coup that happened in November 2016, we wake up every day recognizing that nothing really does matter more than character. I'll say this, having grown up not far from Mr. Trump and knowing who he was during my childhood in New York and then coming home and reading about it and being fully aware of who this person was, I don't believe anything matters more than that. And even though he acted like a liberal Democrat, a liberal New York Democrat up until what, 2012 maybe? Even if he still did today, even if he ran as a liberal Democrat and won, and his policies today were those of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, Nancy and Chuck, I would still want him in jail. I still want him removed because he does not have the character to be the president of the United States. And we can call that morality, whatever, but that to me is the most important issue. So I was running this campaign on that as best I could from the time I started. And it was one of those motivating factors that got me involved because one of my best friends had passed away in July and I was mm -hmm. mourning him and I really wasn't prepared to get into yeah. a race. But then I decided that in his honor, he would want me to do this. And so I wanted to do it and do it for the right reasons. Now, this whole thing is blown up. As I said in one of those stories, I trust Helga. She came to me a few weeks after that incident and told me the story. She told me that she had told others what had happened at the time. I know she's gone back and forth with other bloggers. I don't believe her story is at all under question because I believe my opponent actually acknowledged that for months. I don't know why he said what he did a few days ago because it makes no sense to do that and to do it in such a manner. But oftentimes, it's as we know from Watergate, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. That seems to be what's happening here too. And I think it just makes my point, but I wasn't saying what I did say specifically relating to that. I think it's something people should take into consideration 
for the delegate race, too, and for the other candidates for whom they're voting. Certainly in a primary, right? Now, if you're running against a Republican, the policies may be so severely different that it doesn't rise to quite the same level. But you can get into a situation where you do have fundamentalist and evangelical Christians supporting probably the most immoral person who's ever become president because Gorsuch, right? I mean, that's it. They are very transactional. That's the phrase that we've been using for the past few years. You can be very transactional and say, this person supported me on that issue. They helped me with this, and that's enough for me. And I'm going to get Supreme Court judges and all the rest. Whereas I would rather deal, as I described that story with uh, Rick, Rick Parsons, I'd rather deal with somebody who is ideologically 180 degrees opposed to me, but whom I trust. And I believe that as used to happen in this country 50, 30, 50 years ago, people on opposite sides of the aisle could, in good faith, come together and compromise and move this country forward. I yearn for that day again. I hope I can help create it for my granddaughters. But that's what's really important. It's not the tribalistic, hyperpartisan fights that we're in, because those end up creating degenerated parties themselves because we lose our moral cores, which is what's happened to the National Republican Party. And that's not good for America. Well, yeah, I, you know, and there's a wrapping, wrapping up on the, the, the Helga Jeff situation. You know, I think that she had released another statement this past Saturday or I think it was Friday, Friday or Saturday. And she had, she had, yeah, I, I, there's a clear issue at stake here that she believes her character is under attack. And, you know, I heard a similar story that she told me and she has told many others. And um, if, you know, Delegate Wildstricker had asked her to to jump out of the rake race, even as as a joke, then I think it's important that there is that truth prevails and whatever happens, because yeah, this is somebody's character at stake. I don't think that she would put this out there. I can't imagine somebody like Helga putting this out there uh, just for the fun of it and to, to be either mocked or ridiculed or to be told that it's not a, doesn't rise to the level of uh, a story, but nonetheless um, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that some element of truth prevails in, in this unfortunate event. And it's look, it's getting more coverage and uh, that's something that, Delegate Wildstricker is going to have to to answer for. I've asked him to respond on the record to uh, her recent statements. I sent him a text message, and he has not responded. I'll reach back out again, but nonetheless, I uh, want to make sure that we have both sides to the story, and I will I will try to ping on him once again. But if he doesn't respond, then that's his prerogative. So um, yes, it is, and he and as you mentioned, he did respond. Andrew yes. Metcalf, and that's on the record. And from what Helga's told me, and I don't know the whole story, but she has told me that there, she told people shortly after the incident. Now, this goes back, and, and I know that there are some out there who will accuse me of trying to ride the coattails of the Me Too movement with this, but this is a fundamental principle. Women have been historically, throughout human history, marginalized and oppressed and not believed. And it's been important 
and I've seen this repeatedly, and I've had to deal with it, and I was involved with creating the Family Justice Center for Councilmember Trachtenberg, and I heard stories, and I've heard stories as a physician of women who are completely beaten down. It's not just the physical abuse, say, of domestic violence. It's the emotional abuse and what we now today call gaslighting, where the women are made to believe that they're really crazy that the abuse never happened and that they're misinterpreting, you know, the words and the framing of it. So there really is no emotional abuse and they're just crazy. And an example of that was with the second story that broke in Annapolis when Cheryl Kagan accused lobbyist Gil Jen of inappropriate yeah. sexual behavior. And Gil's initial response was she's delusional. This is often what happens. Rather than simply trusting that the other person in this, if you're a guy, the woman actually has some agency and she's a human being with as much credibility as you and maybe you should listen to her and take her seriously and work it out if there's a problem, the guys often go, no, you're just crazy. you misreading it. And there are a lot of men out there today who for their entire lifetimes, were using and abusing women without even giving it a second thought because they felt they were entitled to. And I know this is the case, and they don't understand today what's happening. I get that because I've watched the world change with respect to, say, trans people. And I've seen the confusion on people's faces. How could you have been a man and then a woman and everything, and you have to sit down and go through it, and sometimes you have to go through it repeatedly to get people to understand because it's so alien to their upbringing. So here, I trust Helga. When I said I trust Helga, I was accused of somehow making this into more than it is. But you know, these claims of physical sexual harassment are really just the tip of the iceberg. Harvey Weinstein made that the big story. But if you speak to most women, they will tell you it's the culture that underlies it in the workplace, at home, and elsewhere where they're not respected, where they're not treated as human beings with agency and asked for permission, let's discuss these issues, where do we want to go with this, what does consent mean? If that doesn't happen, the sexual harassment is a natural consequence of that. So what's really more important here is the way men treat women with or without respect. That's the big story. That's what they're trying to fix in Annapolis. I don't think they're going to be able to do it just with commissions because the system, it's sort of like systemic racism, the institutional racism. You have to fix the system itself to be able to, to cleanse it of that kind of bigotry because it's built in. Similarly, we have to do that with sexism and trusting the woman's story is an important part of that, particularly in a political campaign where your credibility and your integrity is, is visible when you make a statement about this. When you act, somebody reports it, you mm -hmm. have to figure out how to defend that one way or the other, and you can do it well or you can do it poorly. That's up to you. Yeah. Dana, there's a lot of candidates in the, the delegate race, including uh, one incumbent, Al Carr, and then right. you have the, the seven other candidates who, who are running. You have Let's see if I can – I think I can name them all. You have uh, Myla oh, Johns. Good. You have Emily Shetty. You have Ron Franks. You have, uh, let's see, Leslie Milano. 
and then we have um, Jared Solomon, and we have um, oh, who am I missing? I, I know I'm missing Joel. Some. Joel, there's Joel Rubin. Joel Rubin. So you've Helga. got four guys. You have yeah, and you have Helga. So you have four men and four women. Right. And so, <clears throat> of of the candidates, have you considered in this race to slate with anybody? I know that there's been some discussion, but that hasn't been. It is no slates have been formed, and no, that that talk is somewhat stagnant. So, have you thought at all about? slating up with any of the candidates? Yes, I have. And that's why there was talk about it, but I didn't act on it and create a slate, obviously, because there's no slate. You know that traditionally slates are formed up by the incumbents. It's a, it's a protective defensive shield to intimidate people from running against them. Most people aren't crazy enough to run against a slate. I did that in 2010, right? So it, it takes, a sort of craziness or bravado or fearlessness in order to do that. Sometimes you can break through. I mean, if you never could, then nobody would ever do it, but sometimes you can break through, but proactive slates are generally not created. And I thought, well, this is something to consider, but as I believe I said in the first debate, or I said it to some reporter, this is the most interesting and remarkable group of delegate candidates I can recall since I first started paying attention to local politics in the late 90s. And I I really mean that uh, across the board. And so for me to put together a slate of one, two or three people would mean I'd have to ignore or reject or avoid seven, six or five or four of the others. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. So I'm in a box as far as that goes. There are many different ways to to do this. I think it's important that people do run their own campaigns and start distinguishing themselves. And maybe in a month or two, it might become evident of what can be done. I don't know what Jeff's going to do or not do, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's talk, you know, he did offer me a slave position that was reported and I did turned it down yeah that's david lublin reported that and uh but he wanted me to run for delegate it's not like he was willing to run for delegate and be on my slate for senate that that was never a consideration there so no i decided not to do that so that there has been that movement that little bit of movement but since the filing deadline that's clearly not happening what happens from here on forward I, i really don't know i am Starting to get my campaign in gear. There will be mail dropping tomorrow. My first video should go out this week. I'm going to start canvassing this week. If it doesn't snow tomorrow, I'll be out tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm gearing up to do that. And I know the other candidates will be doing so as well. We'll see how it goes. Uh, it'll it'll be an interesting choice on my part. But then again, the candidates would have to agree to that too. So it's 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 a complicated maneuver and i don't know well, if it's going to work out well yeah and there's been talk of a an all-female slate in district 18 sure. that would be something right. unique i think that would be uh that that the buzz is is leaning in that direction any thoughts on that well how many female candidates are there <laughs> well there's well there's four and so right and how many how many slots are there yeah, yeah, that's a problem, right? Yeah, you see the problem? Yeah, and and that's a problem. And I care about that. I, I just yeah. 
I'm not the kind of person who would go, oh, so what? I'll leave you off or I'll leave yeah. her off or whatever. I, I don't like that. I think they're all qualified in their own rights. And so if I were to try to put that together, somebody would be left out. And I don't want to go there. I might end up yeah. doing that, but that's a tough call. So it's not simple. If there were only three, it would be an easier call. But the guys are also talented as well. And even though I agree with Leslie, because Leslie said this twice so far, the only way we're going to get true equality and equity in this country is to have an equal, is have parity in boardrooms and in legislatures. And the only way to do that is to vote for that. And the best way to do it is you start close to home. So you vote for women in your state and local elections. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to vote only for women. But if you don't vote for women, then this is, the change is not going to come. Men are not going to make this happen. It will take women to make it happen. So as a result, there have been some complaints you may have heard. I don't know if you're working on the story having to do with some of the endorsing organizations. I've heard about And that. the people they interviewed and didn't interview and some just endorsed men for, you know, certain slots and not for, you know, that it's kind of strange given the climate in which we're living today, that the progressive organizations who help power these elections and give credibility to candidates aren't out there making this an important issue. And there's been a lot of chaos in some of these endorsement practices that is unlike anything I've seen in the past, too. It's much more disorganized. So I don't understand that either. But well, I do I'm, agree I am with Leslie that if you – oh, you are. Okay, good. I, so I'm putting it's, together uh, a story about the MCEA endorsement, and there seems to be some confusion because I know some candidates were left out and some were endorsed in District 8 or somewhere. I don't – they haven't released any endorsements yet, but some candidates – were left out of the process. And I've talked to many of the, the District 18 candidates. And so my goal is to to get a statement from MCEA, and that's been somewhat difficult. I'd like to better understand how they conducted its process to determine which candidates were interviewed, whether there was a deadline. And I know that some candidates were left out of that process. So my my goal is to get to the bottom of that and then put it into an article and publish it, hopefully within the next few weeks. And I just need to get MCEA to provide me a statement. Otherwise, I can't. I don't have a story. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I hope I hope you can do that because I think the fundamental problem. I don't want to ascribe sexism to any of this, but the fundamental problem, and I experienced this, was some of these organizations, and it, MCEA was one of them had deadlines in October or November. Now, the filing deadline was last was two weeks ago. It was February 27th. And yet they had deadlines for questionnaires and interviews in October and November. I don't understand that at all. I only got my MCEA questionnaire because one of the candidates told, asked me, have you filled out your MCEA questionnaire? I said, they never sent me one. Well, you better go and get it. And I got it, and I got in my interview at the last minute. Now that's not the way to run this business. It, it really isn't. And I don't understand other than the fear of the overwhelming volume 
of, from the council race, for instance, why all these organizations didn't wait till after the filing deadline. Right. That would have been the right thing to do. And I will give credit to SEIU, which for the first time, I believe, at least in my memory, told the incumbents that they were not going to endorse anybody till after session. Because in the past, they would endorse the incumbents. They were automatically always endorsed incumbents. That's the incumbency protection racket. And they would do that, and the incumbents knew it. <laughs> and they would do it before session. So they had no power over them during session when they needed their votes. And so they, they basically surrendered their agency yeah. during session. So SEIU has decided, I think they're the only one that's done this, that their incumbents are not being endorsed until after session. And I've heard that they're getting positive responses in the legislature as a result of that. That's the way it should be done. I don't know why a union would sort of just cede that power to incumbents who then blithely abuse it, because that's what they've been doing cycle after cycle. So uh, that change, I hope, is coming. But the fact that the process is broken down on many levels and endorsements have come out even before candidates finally filed, I know three of the delegate candidates in, in 18 filed late, relatively late, not like Carhartt, which was like a last-minute kind of filing, but filed, I guess, in January maybe. So, But why should they be penalized? And I've heard some of the administrators of these programs say, well, you know, anybody who was truly committed to running for office would have known already. But I go, that's not fair. There is a de there's a filing deadline. You shouldn't yeah. then simply infer that because they didn't file, you know, that much earlier that they weren't committed. As I mentioned, I was grieving the loss of my friend. I wasn't prepared to make that decision. But I also knew that the unions were going to be doing this. They were trying to front load it. And I was encouraging them not to. But I was forced to some degree to come out earlier and declare in order to be part of the process. And I don't think that's, that's fair. That's just not a good way to do a process. And, you know, if you're, if you're endorsed, you're happy. If you're not endorsed, you're not happy. But you certainly don't want to create an environment where even sometimes the people who are endorsed are really upset with the process, and the people who weren't endorsed don't go around saying, well, I guess they just didn't consider me the best candidate. They go around saying, this whole thing is broken, and then they lose respect for those organizations and their members. And that shouldn't be the way this is done. I hope they can figure this out. But, I, again, I don't know the facts with the MCEA uh, timetable except to say that I got in at the wire in early December. And it should never have been like that. Now, well, you probably have heard from people, there's a whole wave of new questionnaires. I think I've done 12 in the last two or three days. Yeah, It's overwhelming. Yeah. But that's the, that's the post-filing deadline wave that should have been normal for everybody else. But some of the big ones like SCIU and MCEA and LCV came out much earlier. And I, I, I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. Yeah, I'm not so I wish you luck at getting a hold of MCEA because I, you know, it's well, an important I, story. I will. I, and, I, and I have been – and I, I'm sure that if I ask a few people – I, I haven't I haven't asked my my contacts uh, whom I should speak with, but I'm I'm sure that I'll I'll get that information immediately. But I I, I will tell you that I'm a minor detail is not going to put out a questionnaire in the form of a policy questionnaire. But I might do is you know you and I talked last week. <laughs> Unlike 
somebody else who is a candidate for office, and I, I'm emphatically <laughs> not a candidate. Oh, I'm not going to put out my own questionnaire uh, because it's just not something that I, uh, I'm going to do. But I, I could do something fun, as we discussed, maybe a uh, right. get to know the candidates. I think that would be fun. I know you guys are busy filling out these policy questionnaires. They're long-winded, and it takes plenty of your time, and you can be out knocking doors, but nonetheless – um, maybe a, a brief, uh, a reprieve from you know, filling out the, the policy questionnaires and something fun that you might enjoy doing and asking some, some really unique questions that will uh, extrapolate quirks of your personality. That's always good. Right. I'm, I'm right. What's your favorite that. sport? What's your favorite book? Who, which philosopher do you not want to ever read again? I mean, questions yeah. like that. And what well, another thing you could do, because it's sort of the – focus of your podcast is give candidates room to put a short bio in there to talk about themselves because that doesn't come up in any of these other questionnaires. The questionnaires generally, the, the broadest essay question that you'll get is, well, why do you think you're qualified for this office? <laughs> yeah. And if you talk about your high school experience there, that sort of misses the point. So it would, the gap, the vacuum in in the media when it comes to candidates across the board is in getting that personal history out there. Now we do that in our mailers and our social media work and such, but you could get it all together. League of women voters tries does better job of that because they don't endorse anybody. They just ask a few questions and put it out there. There's an advantage. If you don't end up endorsing people, you can get people to be a little bit more candid on those yeah. on your questionnaire because yeah. again you're not making choices as that candidate well, in the show in the, in the, this show i used because i i'm i'm so much more interested in drawing out the the the, the real true person behind the candidate and i can we could talk for hours about the the policies and it's true it's and that's very important for district 18 people want to know where you stand what you're going to fight for in annapolis what policy initiatives you're going to immediately champion what committees you're going to belong to and what coalitions you're going to form and all of the the political wrangling that comes with uh going down into annapolis but then i i'm really focused on the human being the story behind the candidate and that's what I've always tried to use this show to bring out. And I've, I've found, I think I've found great success because people tend to come on and they, they freely unload. This is a safe space for candidates to talk to me and to, to get out an, an alternative message that people learn something about their personality after the interview. And, and yeah, we go, we go usually about an hour and a half, but if people are driving in the car, when they're God forbid stuck in that awful God awful DC Metro traffic. They can tune into the podcast and, and listen and you know they can pull out certain clips. But that's really the reason why I do this is because I listen, I love talking policy. I'm wonky. I I can talk to you days about it, but it sometimes people glaze over and say, I, I can't do this. I want to know who these who these people are, who the candidates are, their life stories, their background, and what got them motivated and why they want to make a difference in the lives of thousands of people who live inside of their district and elsewhere around the state of Maryland. And that's, that's really where I got my start in. And I've done a lot of wonky podcasts and we've, we've really got into the, you know, the elbows of policy, but I got to tell you, 
talking to you, Dana, just, just having this conversation. It's fun. It's engaging. And I think that's what people really want to hear, especially when they want to kick back maybe with a, a beer or a glass of wine on a, on a Sunday night. So, yeah, that's where I, well, you know, I agree. People ask me why, you know, what is it about politics that I, about the practice of politics? What do you like? What do you run? Why have you run four times? And I tell them the first time I ran in 06, just three years after my transition, and I was really scared about doing it. What would my neighbors think? Would they accept me? Would they reject me? Would they open the door when I knocked on it? Would they slam it in my face? Turns out it was a wonderful experience. After the first day, I couldn't wait to go back because these are interesting people. These are fascinating people. I have discovered sources of wisdom in my district that I never knew existed before. When you drive through your district, you don't know your district. When you walk it, and I've walked every street at least twice, if not three times, you really get to know it. You feel like you're at home. And, you know, keep in mind for the, I don't know, 99% of human history, we all lived in these little tribal clans of maybe 100 to 150 people. Everybody knew everybody else. Everybody knew their immediate surroundings. There were no surprises unless they went out to raid another village or in those occasional moments in human history to explore, to move from one continent to the next. We're driving around all the time. We've got the music on. We've got our kids in the back or whatever. We're talking, and we're really not rooted in the community. Going out and canvassing is, to me, the most fun of any campaign. And it's even more fun when people remember that you did it, and you go back and you continue the conversation. Now, the rule is, from all the trainings, you should never spend more than 30 seconds at a door because you, you have all these doors to knock. Uh, my favorite experiences would be more than an hour, an hour and a half. People yeah. would offer me lemonade on a hundred degree day or hot chocolate when it's snowing because we shifted the primaries. And I'm mean, four years ago, I went out in a snowstorm. I, yeah. I did it simply because I had never done that before. So I did it and people welcomed me inside and said, wow, you're committed and let's sit down and have some hot chocolate. That's fun because when in your life do you normally open the door to a stranger and say, come on in, let's talk. It doesn't happen much in America anymore. So being a candidate gives you that entree that you would normally not have under most other circumstances. So that's what I love about campaigning. Yeah, And going door to door, it's the best experience. I've gone door to door and the, the canvassing, you learn about people, you learn about their concerns you take the temperature of what issue is on the minds of voters, and it might be a completely different stance of policy issues that you're championing and things, Definitely. you know, yeah, I hear consistently where people are concerned in Montgomery County about having some of the best access to education, a quality education. They're, they're concerned about issues from transportation. They want to make sure that they can drive to and from a certain location. People in, your district are, you know, I hear concerns about the purple line, and then I hear many pro-purple line and then opposing purple line. And, you know, people are interested in the governor's race. They're talking about how we're going to uh, keep our schools safe. And, you know, in the midst of this gun violence epidemic that we're experiencing around the country, what we're going to do to protect our, our students. And these are these are important topics. And that's... Right, and there's, there's, have you heard about the uh, 
you know, on Pi Day, on when is the 14th? It's like three days from now. The students are all going to be demonstrating. Yeah, I heard about that. gun violence in Montgomery yeah. County, right? That that's becoming a bit of a crisis because the administrators don't want the kids to to leave. Yeah, yeah. And the kids want to leave. Yeah. And I have yeah. to say, as a child of the '60s, I think that's great. I find that extremely inspiring that these kids are so committed and so media savvy and so they, we obviously taught them civics well, right? Because they get it. And I think that's great. I, I just think that's terrific. Even though in Montgomery County, we are relatively well off when it comes to, to gun safety and gun violence, but nobody's safe everywhere. And, you know, state borders are porous and things happen. So I'm, I'm really very proud of them. And I would say the two movements that have really touched me the most and inspired me have been the Me Too movement to watch my sisters stand up and speak out and demand respect and watching these kids after the Stoneman Douglas massacre take control of their lives. And that, Isn't that something, me, Dana? I, it I've is. Never you know, seen, it's great. I've never seen anything like that in my lifetime. I've Listen, I, the first major mass shooting that occurred was when I was in eighth grade, and that was Columbine High School, and I was right. fearful. I was scared. My parents, to the best of their ability, they – you talk to your kids and they, you try to reassure them and they might pull out the old tropes. What's not going to happen here. But the truth of the matter is that it really can happen anywhere. And we have watched subsequent mass shootings occur. And what broke me was the, 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 the Sandy hook. And I just remember where I was. I was in my office in downtown DC at the time I was working for a startup technology company. And I was in Chinatown and my posh uh, 7th Street office. And as as this was happening on a Friday afternoon, I just I, I just could not stop crying because I, I, I said, how could, you know, these first graders, how could this happen? And and so we, you know, it, it was, you know, a lot of good had come out of just an, an absolute horrible, horrible tragedy. But this time it felt different, Dana, as we watched the students one after another and say, if our politicians aren't going to stand up and do something, it is our generation who will find that success and that courage and say no more. And I was surprised they had that CNN town hall where, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they looked yep. at Marco Rubio in the face and said, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And, you know, looking the president of the United States in the face and telling these horrific harrowing stories parents who just literally lost their children days before they went to the white house and i have to tell you i i was listening on xm radio to this this event and it's amazing what you hear versus from visually uh, versus what you hear on audio and i just didn't feel that the president really had a grasp or the empathy that he needed to 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 show during that i mean what's their What's their thing? Let's arm teachers. That's that's a tremendously awful idea. Nobody, we don't. Yeah, want to they've do that. They, they've doubled down on that recently. I think it was today that's or yesterday. Sick. No, well, he doesn't have empathy, and that's a again, that's a brain condition. He simply does not have empathy. He's never had empathy. He's that's not a you know an act. He simply does not have that. One thing that's different between what we did in the '60s and what's happening now. No, we stopped the war. We, we kept many of 
our fellow, our friends and such from having to go to Vietnam and getting killed. But the difference between then and now, which is very striking, is there was a generational chasm in the 60s. Uh, the motto of my generation was don't trust anybody over 30. And uh, I'm really on the other side of 30 now, but there was. Our parents did not understand us. Our parents wanted to control us. Our parents would throw their arms up in confusion. And that, that divide really did split families apart. Today, you don't see that. Today, we parents are extremely proud of our children. Hmm. We're cheering them on. We're showing up at the White House with them. We're going out and demonstrating with them. That is very exciting. And that's what gives me the most hope for the future, because these kids have a voice. And I have to say, a lot of them do a much better job politicking than I do, or most of the people <laughs> around here than I know. It's, it's just it's quite it's remarkable. It's like, wow, look at that. So that wow. gives me hope for the future. Well, you, know, you had mentioned and we, did, we, didn't, we didn't talk about this at all. You, you, okay. You're in tech, right, and startups and stuff. Well, my yeah. older son is too, and so I enjoy doing that. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But Yeah, uh, anytime. And, I find but that I, very I, exciting, so. We have a whole host of issues that we're going to talk about next time, but we're going to end the show on this. Um, Dr. Dana Beyer, it's a real pleasure. I enjoyed this so much on, on Sunday evening. So thanks for, thanks for coming on tonight for the first time, and let's, let's do this again. Okay, my pleasure, Ryan, and good All luck right. with uh, preparing the wedding. Oh, thank you. Well, we appreciate that. So have a, <laughs> You're very you have a great week. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Dana Beyer, um, candidate for state senate in District 18. And that, we're going to end the show. See you next week.